This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's up to the Senate now to vote on a way to avoid a lapse in Appropriations Friday when the current continuing resolution ends. It's not exactly a route to full 2022 appropriations, but it's not disaster. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, let's start with a definition of what they mean by a budget framework, because frameworks can collapse. Exactly. And it still could collapse. And it's very tenuous at this point. You know, we're only four months into the fiscal year, after all, and we actually actually may soon have a budget for the fiscal year that began way back in October. But right now, it's still a little bit unclear about, more than a little bit unclear about what this actually means. Uh, The appropriators on the House and Senate side were very coy last week when they said, yes, we have this tentative agreement, but they really wouldn't go into any details about what it included. There was some talk about the fact that it will include so-called parity between defense spending and non-defense spending. But other than that, there's a lot more more we need to learn about this, um, but it does buy them some more time uh, as we get through with this continuing resolution, or I should say the continuing resolution buys them more time, uh, the House passing it last week, uh, so no threat of a government shutdown this Friday when money was to run out with the CR expected to be extended through March 11th. The Senate is likely to vote on that this week. Got it. So maybe by the cherry blossoms or something, they'll have something <laughs> together. But right. what happens once they pass, if they pass the latest CR, that still only gives them three weeks to do the hard work. Right. And there's still a lot of nervousness, frankly, among lawmakers. Uh, One of the people that's uh, kind of nervous about this is Virginia Senator Mark Warner, who wrote to the Office of Management and Budget last week saying, look, this better come together or a lot of states are going to lose money uh, in connection with the infrastructure funding that is kind of front loaded into this spending plan. And he pointed out that just in Virginia alone, the state could lose more than $350 million for roads and bridges and more than $50 million in transit funding if this doesn't get approved. And then, as we've talked about in the past, there's concern among defense officials that if it doesn't get approved, that a lot of these big programs for training and for weapon systems could also be held up. So there's still a lot of concern about what's actually going to happen, even though uh, there was a little bit of a mini celebration last week when the appropriator said, yes, we have this general framework. Yeah, so more a crack in the ice, if you will, than just the flowing of the dollars just yet. Exactly. All right. And I wanted to ask you about Representative Connolly of Northern Virginia. He has a large interest, had a hearing last week on Metro and some of the safety issues. But there's another issue with Metro that is coming, I guess, of concern to the Hill, and that is the lack of federal bulk ridership. You know, the people going to work on Metro is just not materializing yet. Right. And, you know, here we are. We're on the cusp, perhaps, of uh, maybe a little bit of the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel in connection with the pandemic. But for Metro, that tunnel is very, very long right now because at this hearing last week that uh, Jerry Connolly presided over, uh, they noted that, you know, normally you would get close to 40% of Metro's ridership during the week from federal workers, and they're nowhere close to that right now. In fact, the Metro general manager, Paul Wiedefeld, said that they are down 70% from pre-pandemic levels. So you can imagine what that's doing to the revenues for Metro, and they really need more of these federal workers to get back on the rails and getting back into their offices, and it's just not happening right now. So that's a huge uh, 
fiscal challenge for Metro. Uh, they are getting a little bit of increased ridership on the weekends and, and some of the off hours, but that doesn't even come close to you know replenishing the money that they've lost during the pandemic from the loss of federal employees. Right, and it could be another month or so. I think the end of March is when agencies, the earliest ones, are thinking about some sort of mass return to the office. And of course, that's optional, and it still gives another six weeks of low revenue. Right. And then the other issue is, uh, as you know, uh, Metro is not running at full speed right now because of the derailment that happened last fall, and they're still reviewing safety issues in connection with the wheels on these 7,000 series rail cars. And so even those people that are riding Metro right now are finding themselves waiting on station platforms for very long periods of time. And Metro officials at this hearing last week acknowledged that really at the earliest that's going to get closer to back to normal is maybe in April. But again, there could be delays with that. And uh, when you have federal workers uh, potentially going back to the office, you know, they're going to be trying to figure out, well, how am I going to get back to the office? What if I can't rely on Metro to get there in a timely fashion? I was talking to somebody the other day who was just trying to get to the Capitol, and they said from one day to the other, it can vary by uh, 30 to 45 minutes. So that makes a big difference when you're commuting every morning and afternoon. Sure. And that intersection of Florida Avenue, New York Avenue, and First Street Northeast is still years yet from being fixed. Right. So don't try to drive right. that way. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent. And if all rails lead to Jerry Connolly, so do a lot of other roads. And his hearing on the postal issue, a postal service delivery is coming up, and that's as Congress considers a reform bill that right. could help the Postal Service financially. A lot of issues coming up related to the Postal Service. Congressman Connolly uh, today is actually holding a field hearing in Baltimore, and this relates to delivery issues. Uh, they have done co- several reviews showing that the Baltimore area actually has some of the worst delivery service in the country. Uh, Just one example, first class delivery, which is supposed to get to its destination within three to five days. It's only arriving in the Baltimore area close to 60% of the time. So 40% of the time, you're likely not to get whatever you want delivered on time, at least through first class delivery. And there have been also problems in the closer in suburbs here around Washington. Uh, There is some bright news for the Postal Service with this big uh, reform bill that was passed last week by the House and looks like it's moving forward. Uh, As you know, uh, the Postal Service has had major problems with red ink uh, going back well over a decade, uh, just not being able to pay uh, for itself. And, of course, the big reason for that is, unlike many other agencies, it has to pay for its retirement funding and health care up front. And so this completely changes the funding related to the Postal Service. It's estimated that alone could save the Postal Service over $20 billion over the next decade. And then there are a variety of other areas where they believe that billions of additional dollars will will be saved. And then as far and part of that is, is requiring that Postal Service employees enroll in Medicare, uh, that would cut down on the premium costs. Currently, only about about a quarter of retired postal workers actually don't enroll in Medicare, even though they're eligible. So that's a big area of potential savings. And then just for the average person who wonders, well, what's this mean for my mail service? Uh, They are planning under this legislation to continue six-day-a-week service. And then the other big thing is they are going to create an online dashboard, which you will be able to supposedly look at and find out 
how well your service area, if you live in Baltimore or somewhere else, how well it's actually doing compared to other parts of the country. So they're trying to increase the transparency of the Postal Service. So you could find out whether that Christmas card your grandmother mailed <laughs> in 1957 will actually be on the way. Exactly. <laughs> they said, yeah, it'll be there Tuesday. And just another issue, Congress has been looking at the Washington commanders because the – and as I – Recall, they were not in the Super Bowl yesterday, but (laughs) the sexual harassment issue, how does that come before the uh, august body of of the Congress of the United States? Right. A lot of people wonder, what is Congress doing investigating the Washington commanders, formerly the Washington football team? And it all comes down to workplace issues, as has been documented by the Washington Post and others. There have been major issues in connection with sexual harassment, uh, a lot of issues with women being mistreated within the organization. Organization. And so the House Oversight and Reform Committee decided to take the bull by the horns on this issue and held a hearing last week, which included uh, it wasn't actually a full blown hearing. It was actually technically a roundtable. So the witnesses were not under oath, but basically they outlined a lot of these problems. And so now what the House Oversight Committee is trying to do is get the NFL to open up about this investigation that was done in connection with the team because they never actually revealed what was in the report related to the team, we heard a lot of uh, reports in the media about what was in it, but they never actually uh, issued it. And that's because the report was oddly enough done in a verbal fashion with the NFL top office. So there's been a lot of pressure from members of Congress to say, look, we need a lot of uh, transparency on these workplace issues and then complicating things even more. At this hearing, there was an allegation specifically made against owner Dan Snyder by one of the former employees. That has also set off another mini drama in connection with the NFL and this committee, uh, which really wants to get a lot of the documents related to the investigation. Believe it or not, there are more than 100,000 outstanding documents in connection with this investigation. And the committee is pushing the NFL to release them. The NFL, in turn, says, well, we can't release them because of this complicated legal agreement related to the team. And the, the team actually has to release it. So a lot of uh, big items related to this soap opera involving Washington commanders. Obviously, they have a lot of issues on the field as well, a long way from the Super Bowl for sure. But uh, this is going to be an issue that is going to continue, I think, uh, because you'll recall that going back to uh, issues with Major League Baseball and steroid use, people sometimes forget that Congress actually has a power to move forward these issues, which will otherwise lie dormant because the leagues don't really want the bad publicity. Well, if you want to take down the team and get those papers, don't grab that bull by the horns necessarily. (laughs) No, that's true. You don't want to do that. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses 
and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.